Coming up next, the book that ain't reads Man's Field Park. Diabolical. <laughs> Hello, all my children. Welcome to the Bookening. Welcome to our little show. My name is Nathan Alverson. I'm your humble and obedient host. And I'm joined today by my two best friends in the whole world. We've got Brandon Chasteen over there. Brandon Chasteen. <laughs> Hey, Nathan. <laughs> He's ready to talk about Mansfield Park, aren't you, Brandon? Yeah, I am. Are you excited? Yes. Me too. It's one of my favorite novels. And we've got the pastor, Brandon, who's a master of reading. It's Jake Mansell. Hi. Am I uh, addressing Nathan or the mysterious fan? I'm trying to... Nathan. Have the mysterious phantom on for a Jane Austen. That sounds a little bit like you might be channeling the mysterious I phantom. I wouldn't even know what the mysterious phantom sounds like. I've never been on the same episode with him. That's right. Jake, if there's one thing we'll never do, it's have the mysterious phantom on a Jane Austen episode. We'll never do it. It's not gonna it's happen. Good to hear. I'm relieved. It's not not anything that I have planned. <laughs> uh. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know what to think right now. <laughs> How you guys doing? You excited for Austin Month? Happy February. Did you take your wives out on dates? and All kinds of them. Paint the town on? Yeah. How many dates have you taken your wife out on lately, Jake? And where'd you go? And what'd you do? And uh, are you the kind of gentleman that can... Uh, uh, I don't know where that question was going. Yeah, where, what, what's the most recent date that you went on with your lovely wife, Mrs. Mensel? Jake? In February. We're in February, right? We're in February. But you, you just what, tell us... What day is today? Today is probably, uh, no, our episodes come out on Wednesdays, so this would be February the 7th. So it's Wednesday, February 7th. Mm-hmm. I have probably been on a birthday date. Oh, a birthday date. How was that? It was wonderful. Wonderful? Yeah. Whose birthday? Mine. Yours? Oh, that's right. You have a birthday in February. I do. So does Amanda. So does Amanda. Okay. So do you do one combined date or do you get two dates out of this deal? I don't know yet. It's a mystery. <laughs> you can't <laughs> tell us. <laughs> I can't tell you what just happened. I have no idea. What would be fun is if you had some amazing surprise figured already done, and since we're recording this in advance, you could talk about it as if it had already happened. Like, the string players came and played outside Amanda's window, and she looked out, and they were playing Wagner's whatever. <laughs> wow. Wagner's what she'd go for. <laughs> That's, That's right. Yeah. Sounds, yeah. right? <laughs> some nice Stravinsky. Yeah. <laughs> some Schoenberg. Brandon, what's the most recent day that you've been on with the lovely Mrs. Chastine? Too many to even recount. Too many to yeah. recount. Yeah. You know what I was thinking, yeah. yeah. Every day is a date with Brandon and with Jake, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. You guys get your home, your wives are at the door, they kiss you, welcome, the, the children cluster around, and domestic bliss is achieved. Yeah. Daily what happens every yeah. time I walk through the door. <laughs> <laughs> even if you just go out to get the mail. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm glad to hear I it. I myself it makes... going to check the mail frequently, actually. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> just so you can. It's necessary because that that moment of bliss doesn't last too long. <laughs> yeah. Just to kind of reset things, it's like yeah. a video game. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, if there's one thing since you know that makes me want to get married, it's seeing the wonderful marriages that uh, our fine Pastor Menzel and Mr. Chastine over here have. They they basically live in wedded bliss, conjugal bliss, twenty four seven. And it's always happy. It always makes me happy to see it. I'm glad to see it. I think, wow, maybe one day I could meet a woman and uh, marry her. That would be step one. Step one would be meet a woman. (laughs) Maybe one day I could meet a woman. (laughs) Bless my lucky stars. It's a woman. (laughs) I've never actually met a woman before. I don't know. I hear they're quite fascinating, but, you know, uh, I'd have to, I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to be made of sterner stuff. Yeah, they are kind of like dragons. <laughs> they are kind of like dragons, aren't they? Um, Is there an Austin part of the uh, Ready Player One universe? That would be. I'm gonna guess that there is. Yeah. Oh, there's. If this gotta be. If you lived in Ready Player One verse, people would want to go to the Jane Austen planet and just live in the carriages and balls and social. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. People. People. Yeah, is that where you would live? No. <laughs> Jane Austen's world would be very boring. <laughs> no. Heavens no. You know, people always are like, ah, Jane Austen, I can't read it because it's full of carriages. And it's like, no, I don't like carriages either. I don't care about any of the accoutrement of a Jane Austen novel. What I care about is her incisive look into human relationships. And I don't want to say it that way. And uh, <laughs> the the battle of the sexes and all that kind of stuff. You know, Jane Austen is really good. So maybe there I, would be a planet of authors and then you could go find Jane Austen avatar. Oh, yeah. Just like the, the Barnes and Nobles. Like the, of, uh, <laughs> yeah. What do you call that thing? Mural yeah. planet. <laughs> just the, everybody sitting in a Parisian find cafe kind of looking thing. Yeah. Take her to what? Like the Star Wars galaxy or something oh, like that. I would take Jane Austen's avatar to Star Wars galaxy. Take her straight to Coruscant or how you say that planet. We'd uh, Maybe I'd take her to, what's that planet? Naboo. Yeah, uh, take her to Naboo place. to Mustafar. Yeah, see if she uh, see how she compares to. Place to be. I wouldn't take her to Mustafar. I'm not taking Jane Austen's Avatar to Mustafar. I'll take her to here to uh, Naboo. Basically, Mordor has a planet. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not taking her to planet Mordor. Uh, <laughs> no, I would take her to Naboo. You did call Mordor the last hope of the West or something like that in a recent episode. Did I really? No, Nathan. Oh, oh. wait, I called Mordor the last hope of the West. Yeah, when we were making fun of Star Wars or something. Was that just being a goofball? Like I said the wrong thing? You just said the wrong thing. Oh, okay. I don't remember that. I don't think I've been caught that in editing. I usually I hear things that I say later on usually. But we were talking about, you know, how Peter Jackson thought it was super cool to Oh, uh, maybe it was in the Casablanca episode. Of, oh, for of, Sa- of Sound of Sanity. Sound of Sanity. Yeah, Gondors. I I meant Gondor, but I said Mordor, I guess. Yeah. I don't know what context would have made me say either one, but I don't know. We were just Making fun of Peter Jackson's whole. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. When people, yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing that I always like to make fun of of how people arrive at locations in those movies and then they declare it it would be like if I pulled up at Walmart and said Walmart, the place of great bargains. And you know, anytime you get to a location, you state what you stand portentously and state what it is. I love that. I'm gonna start making this a habit. (laughs) It's great in the Lord of the Rings movies just to figure what's the logic. Like they've been riding their horse. This thing has been in plain sight forever and now Gandalf's (laughs) gonna pull up and take a pause take a big (laughs) breath just state where they are and I guess it's better than having the stupid subtitles come across the screen to tell you where they are like I hate in those like a Jason Bourne movie or something like you'll see the Eiffel Tower and everything and then on the screen they'll be like Paris (laughs) thanks movie (laughs) you'll see Big Ben and the London Bridge and everything and it'll be like London okay great you must really think I'm a moron it's insulting is what it is Brandon it's insulting to your intelligence 
It was a nice trick in Star Wars when you had no idea what in the world was going on. Yeah, yeah. there it's just like window dressing. It's just a little extra spice. Like, and honestly, I mean, I saw the Lord of the Rings movies before I read the books, so... Yeah, there's only so many it, ways to get exposition out, but maybe they could have come <laughs> up with something a little bit more elegant than, than doing that every single time. <laughs> every single time they get somewhere. Place. Yeah. <laughs> Rivendell, the last homely home. Like, okay, thanks, but Dr. Exposition. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of Dr. Exposition, well, that would be a good segue into your uh, context thing, but we're not there yet, Brandon. Nope. I know you're chomping at the bit to get the context out, but you know what we got to do first? What? Donor shout outs. Let's do it. You guys ready? Oh, yeah. All right. All right. I'm going to give you guys both a chance to help us shout out some donors here. Let's just go through it here in the order that I will do. Let's do some Andrew and Esther. Jake. Andrew and Esther. Let's do some The Inscrutable Jenny Z. The Inscrutable Jenny Z. Let's do some Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Let's do some John and Jill, the lovebirds, and little baby Max. John and Jill, the lovebirds, and little baby Max. Let's do some my beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. Indecision over pronouns <laughs> is humorous to me. Uh, let's do some. Maya! Maya! I like it how yours is always the shout out for Maya. <laughs> it's just, I don't have a gimmick, so I just do a silly voice for her. When, in, when you don't have a gimmick or anything to say, do a silly voice. It's the Nathan Alberson philosophy, podcasting philosophy, in short. It's their faces, what are their names? Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. <coughs> the lovebirds, of course. Benjamin Tiberius. Benjamin Tiberius. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. And of course, the mysterious Dr. Nope, Professor. I always get that wrong. Professor X. Professor X. Now I bet there's a lot of people listening right now who feel like they should go get themselves a Sprite. <laughs> <laughs> seven up. <laughs> yeah, or seven up. It would have to be a lemon lime cola for some reason. I don't mm, know why. Sounds um, good. That would be good. That would be good. I myself am drinking water right now. I'm glad I am of it. It's replenishing my body. I love it. I'm happy for water. Oh, people are probably listening right now, and they are like, why isn't my name being shouted out? Here, I'll play the part of someone who's like that, and you play the part of Jake of someone smart who's like my best friend. <laughs> my smart best friend is going to tell me what to do. Sure. Jake, I'm listening to this podcast, and they're shouting out all these people, and I can't help but notice the one person they're not shouting out is me. I'm so depressed. I think I'll throw myself in front of a train. Well, my idiot friend who is tempted to throw themselves in front of a train because a podcast didn't mention your name. <laughs> you truly are an idiot. <laughs> but I have one simple solution for you. Okay. Besides simply not throwing yourself in front of a train. Tell me, the idiot, what I should do in order to not throw myself in front of said train. Well, one, just don't, don't do that. Okay. Because that would be dumb. But Done. two, two, in order to be shouted out on uh, the podcast, all you have to do... Okay is go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash the bookening and pledge to give as little as $10 a month. 
And for as little as $10 a month, you will get an awesome shout out on the booking. Could I give more money oh, than yes. $10? Oh, yes, you could. You could give you could give a million dollars a month and you could you would still get that shout out. It's true. From I could I have the privilege of giving a million dollars a month to my favorite podcast in the world, the greatest Christian literature podcast. And you get a shout out and you would also get a book a month, which is probably well, worth the price of a million dollars. Is that really all I get for a million dollars a month? <laughs> well, we don't have any higher price levels <laughs> I think The podcast host should come and wash my car or something like that. You get a high If five. anybody wants to give us a million dollars a month, I will come and personally wash your car. All right, friend, I'm going to give a million dollars a month to the podcast. Oh, no, my foot is caught. I'm falling in front of the train. <laughs> <laughs> That's, the train sounds like a car. <laughs> 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 Ah, I'm dead. Oh, that was too bad. Ta-da! And that was uh, <laughs> my performance as an idiot and Jake's performance as an idiot's friend. And if there's any other idiots out there listening, well, you know what to do. Don't throw yourself in front of a train. Don't accidentally fall in front of a train that sounds like a car. No. Instead, go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. Sign up for $10 a month or more. Now, now to be fair, you can sign up for as low as what a dollar a month, and that oh, is yeah. helpful to us. Every, or if but you you're want, just not going to get shouted out. If you want to help us yeah. out for free, go to uh, Apple. If, if you got your Apple, you got your smartphone, your iPhone, give us a nice rating or review. Give us five stars. That's, that's really helpful. One, so. f- one fun thing you should know is that if you give as little as $1 a month or $4 a month, we now have weekly content going up behind the paywall. Weekly yeah. video updates. Video uh-huh. updates, yeah. behind the scenes stuff of before we record every episode. Yep. We make videos. <laughs> <laughs> every episode. Every <laughs> single time we do this. <laughs> just make a quick and note. if you give less than five stars, you're dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> Although we did get a very nice review from a non-Christian gentleman that gave us four stars. So that's yeah, that was cool. a no, that was really sweet. Yeah, you're not dead to me. <laughs> No, that dude's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you're awesome. Yeah, if you're listening, Hi, dude. If you're listening, dude, you should become a Christian. You should. He really yeah, should. totally. But thanks for the four stars in the meantime. What's that sound? Yeehaw! <laughs> it's the sound of the contextual Texan. <laughs> Brandon's firing off those pistols. Hail and hearty yeehaw. He's been beginning his uh, segment. He's got like, wow, five pages of notes or something like that. I didn't think he was going to have any notes because this is our third uh, time that he's had to do contacts on Austin. I'm excited to see. I had to what- get creative. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. He's going to get creative. He's going to... Well, hey, this will be, for some people, the first time of listening to any Austin episode we've ever done. Yeah, that's very true. Now, if you want to go back and hear, you can always listen to our Pride and Prejudice episodes or our Emma episodes, which are some fine episodes of The Bookening. But I'm excited to see what Brandon's going to talk about here for his third time at bat doing some content. I'm sorry. The reason I keep talking is because I'm trying to introduce this segment. It's the contextual Texan. Brandon's from Texas. He hails from the fine state of Texas. I understand that everything biggest bigger there texas roadhouse just called roadhouse i believe that's there. right you know food that's, is that's, better there sunsets are better there sunsets are, sunsets are better my brother got married there no my brother didn't get married there my friend got married there uh one of the aforementioned people we we just shouted out got married in texas fine state of texas point is brandon's from texas and he's going to provide some context some much needed context for this work so that's why the segment is called the contextual texan because it was a vaguely cute thing that i came up with over 70 episodes ago, and we've stuck with it. That's right. I really, uh, for that particular one, thought we'd come up with something better, but we never bothered. No. (laughs) (laughs) So We've kept most of the 
stuff we came up with that first episode. Yeah, yeah baggage we, check. Baggage check is Texan. still there. Baggage check is a, gr- a great name for a segment. Contextual Texan. I've always been a little, but you're from Texas, and that's cool. Yeah, we, yeah. And we lean into it. Makes people it like it. Interesting. It's people fine. People like it, and people love the. Don't gun. get too self conscious yeah. about it. All right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but we love contextual text, and we certainly love to hear context from Brandon, as we're about to do, starting now. Three, two, one. Let's do this. Take it, Brandon. Well, well what's nice is. Every year, we get to see how this segment develops, mm-hmm. and so now we kind of have a groove the way we do things. Mm-hmm. So let's see what happens. Yeah. I got to have some fun with this. Uh, I actually, right before I came here, it's been a long time since I've been to the IU library, mm-hmm. so I went to the IU library and oh. went up and found the Austin section oh, cool. nice. and just was walking around, and I found a book that had a lot of context in it. So one of the cool things that I found, and maybe I can send this so we can put it, uh, you can post it or something, Yeah, was a prayer an evening prayer that Jane Austen wrote. Hmm. Huh. So, and I, I can read a little bit of it. Yeah, yeah just read it. Give us grace, Almighty Father, so to pray as to deserve to be heard, to address thee with our hearts as with our lips. Thou art everywhere present, from thee no secret can be hid. May the knowledge of this teach us to fix our thoughts on thee, with reverence and devotion that we pray not in vain. And then it keeps going. You want me to keep... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Look with mercy on the sins we have this day committed, and in mercy make us fill them deeply, that our repentance may be sincere and our resolution steadfast of endeavoring against the commission of such in future. Teach us to understand the sinfulness of our own hearts, and bring to our knowledge every fault of temper and every evil habit in which we have indulged to the discomfort of our fellow creatures and the danger of our own souls. May we now, and on each return of night, consider how the past day has been spent by us, what have been our prevailing thoughts, words, and actions during it, and how far we can acquit ourselves of evil. Have we thought irreverently of thee? Have we disobeyed thy commandments? Have we neglected any known duty? or willingly given pain to any human being. Incline us to ask our hearts these questions, O God, and save us from deceiving ourselves by pride or vanity. Give us a thankful sense of the blessings in which we live, of the many comforts of our lot, that we may not deserve to lose them by discontent or indifference. Be gracious to our necessities, and guard us, and all we love, from evil this night. May the sick and afflicted be now and ever thy care, and heartily do we pray for the safety of all that travel by land or by sea, for the comfort and protection of the orphan and widow, and that thy pity may be shown upon all captives and prisoners. Above all other blessings, O God, for ourselves and our fellow creatures, we implore thee to quicken our sense of thy mercy and the redemption of the world, that the value of that holy religion in which we have been brought up, that we may not by our own neglect throw in away, away the salvation thou hast given us, nor be Christians only in name. Hear us, Almighty God, for his sake who has redeemed us, and taught us thus to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, etc. Hmm. Yeah, so she wrote that. That's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to hear her because she's usually so reserved on. It's interesting to hear something so explicitly religious. Yeah. And I wanted to open with that because a lot of the debate that surrounds this book is whether or not we should take Fanny Price seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Fanny Price, one of the big things that surrounds her is propriety, mm-hmm. but also this respect for serious things. And so she takes the clergy seriously. And that's what draws her to Edmund and why they eventually are married um, because she's constant. She has her principles and she doesn't sway from them. A lot of people want to see Fanny Price as an ironic figure because she's not the icon of feminist, uh, the feminist movement that they can kind of get with Elizabeth. That they erroneously think that Elizabeth Bennet yeah, is or Emma is. Exactly. Or, yeah. They think they can get it with Elizabeth. They can't, but they think they can. But Fanny Price doesn't have any possibility of it. Yeah. And so they have to read her as this ironic figure. But 
if you look actually at what Jane Austen wrote with her life and who she was, she was a fairly conservative person. Her father was a rector, and so she had a respect for the clergy that probably influenced, well, didn't probably, it definitely influenced her depiction of Fanny Price. Mm-hmm. So so that's just kind of an introduction. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that I had never thought about the fact, sorry to interrupt so soon, but I never thought, I had never thought in this, the section where Mary Crawford is making fun of the clergy. It didn't. It did not occur to me to think that that sort of talk would actually be there. Would be a personal offense to Jane Austen for somebody to do something like that in a way that wouldn't just be a, a duty of propriety, but it might be something she'd actually take pretty personally, like yeah. insulting dad kind of thing. And her and three of her brothers as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So and her grandfather on her mother's side. All all these she had um, ties to the clergy. Hmm. So. Yeah. So that's contextual text. And there we go. All right. There we go. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. So that's a nice segue then into her life, who she was. So we can give a brief introduction as to who she was again. She was born in 1775, died in 1817. A very short life, died in her early 40s. Actually, she has a very similar life to someone we'll be reading later in the year, which is Flannery O'Connor. Hmm. And I think that Jane Austen mastered the novel in the way that Flannery O'Connor mastered the short story. So it'll be hmm. fun to have this parallel happen later in the year. Cool. So, yeah. So there's, we actually don't know a whole lot about her. We had, do get some information from her letters, but she, that she would write to her older sister, Cassandra. But apparently there are whole periods of her life where people would just burn the letters and expunge them. So there are certain things we don't know about her, why they expunge these letters. In fact, there's a whole period between 1801 to 1804 where Cassandra burned all the letters. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows why. Oh boy, do people like to speculate though. Oh, they like to speculate. Most people speculate that it has to do with the unsuccessful proposal of a clergyman to marry her and the scandal that kind of surrounded that. And a lot of people then see that as influencing her writing this novel because Henry Crawford's unsuccessful proposal and Thomas Bertram's response was probably very like her father's response. And so Mansfield Park in some way was probably her coming to terms with what happened there. But her father was a clergyman. Their life at home was very happy from what we can tell. Some people like to speculate that it wasn't happy, but for everything we actually know, suggests that it was a happy childhood. Lots of books in her father's library. They would read all the time. They were a very creative family. Her and her sisters would put on plays that they would write together. She was already writing plays by, you know, the age of 13 or 14. Had, what was that book that you saw? Julie Castle? Some, so there's a whole, there's a collection of things that she no, wrote in her. Bella, Juvenilia. Yeah, it's all Juvenilia. Very similar to, we talked about uh, the boxing by C.S. Lewis, his world of boxing. And so this would be her world that she was, so it was the world of plays, world of uh, a lot of parodies that she would write. So in the 1970s, when she would have been in her teens, she wrote Love and Friendship, which was a parody of... Good. Leslie Castle. Yeah, Leslie Castle. So Did that was you say in the 1970s? The 1790s. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, the 1970s. <laughs> she would have been a member of the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> she actually aged backwards. Yeah. Um, she is immortal. <laughs> Love and Friendship, it was a parody of the romance-style novel that was very popular at the time. She also wrote a volume called The History of England, which was a parody of some of the English histories that were written at the time as well. So that to say, she was a humorist, she had a wit that she was known for, and she liked to be gay and witty. Gay in the old sense, gay in the old British sense. Witty and fun and lighthearted 
with a lot of her early works. And that would obviously go over and cross over into her mature novels. I would say probably, if you wanted to say any protagonist was probably like Jane Austen, it would be Elizabeth from Pride and Prejudice. That's the sense that I get, is Elizabeth and Jane Austen have a lot of similarities. So she was sent to a boarding school during her pre-adolescence when which she nearly died of typhus, hmm. along with her sister Cassandra. Her older sister Cassandra, I keep mentioning her, it's because they were very close. And she was the one that she wrote most of her letters to. And so most of what we know about Jane Austen, we know through letters. And you can actually get some of these collections of letters and go read them. I was trying to find them, but I couldn't. I think it was checked out at the library because I wanted to read some of those. Uh, she's would have spent her early adulthood helping run her family home. She would have been playing the piano. She would have been reading a lot of these things that the landed gentry ladies would have been doing at the time because her father, as a clergyman, I think he came from a successful family of cotton, had some either the wool trade or the cotton trade, which meant that they could buy some property and become part of the landed gentry. <clears throat> and Cassandra and her older brother, Henry, who would champion a lot of her works and actually get her posthumous novels published as well. So they were as f- typically, if it's an unhappy family, you don't see the siblings being as close as these siblings were. But her dad decided to retire and they moved to Bath. He gets into some financial straits. He dies, which leaves them in even more financial straits, the, her mother and the daughters, so that her brothers, Edward and Henry, and there may have been one other brother. I can't remember his name. There was one other big brother. Big family, I forget. But, yeah. yeah. They came in and they actually, they Henry was the head of some sort of banking firm and they assisted with money so that they could be comfortable, the sisters. And finally, eventually, they ended up in a cottage, which is still standing. It's Edward's cottage. You can go and you can visit it in England today, where she lived out the rest of her life with her mother and her sisters, very much like Flannery O'Connor in her house in Georgia, lived Hmm. out her life with her mother until she died in her early 40s of what most people think is Addison's disease, as far as we know. But she died young at 42. So most of her mature works, she wrote all through her 20s. Most of her mature works weren't published until her 30s. The first successful book that she published was Sense and Sensibility in 1811. And she had Pride and Prejudice in 1813, then Mansfield Park in 1814, and finally Emma in 1815. And you can kind of see the progression of her maturity through each of these books. Yeah, I think maybe, I think I got that wrong, or I don't know whether I said it wrong or whether I just had it in my head wrong when we were talking about Emma. I just assumed, I think, or thought that I knew that Mansfield Park came after Emma. And it seemed in my head to make more sense that way because it felt like we were moving from frivolous to serious. But it's interesting to think that Mansfield Park is actually sandwiched in between Hmm. her two funniest novels, Pride and Prejudice and Emma. Mm -hmm. A lot of people see Emma as her most mature work, and we can talk about why. Um, when we get into the discussion of the novel. Sure. But, um, so after her death, she had two works that weren't published, but her brother Henry kind of cleaned up and saw their publication. One was Northanger Abbey, and the other was Persuasion. She had moderate success. She had, actually had quite a bit of success with Sense and Sensibility, quite a lot of success with Pride and Prejudice, but she was never like a hit with the reviewers. Mm-hmm. She got favorable reviews for the most part. A lot of the hip young taste what do they call them? Tastemakers? Tastemakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They liked her books quite a bit. Uh, in fact, the royal regent, which I guess was the prince, he liked her books and actually had copies next to her, his um, nightstand. 
Oh, cool. And so it's a, it's a famous story. She thought he was, she did not like him because he was a drunk. He was a playboy. He was basically Robert Downey Jr.'s character. What is he? What no, is Tony he? Stark? Tony Stark, thank you. He was basically Tony Stark. She didn't like him. A lot of bad reputation, but he liked her so much that his chief librarian strongly advised her to dedicate Emma to him. And so I do believe that Emma is dedicated to him. Hmm. So, yeah, so she got a, a moderate amount of fame, enough that she was able to publish... Mansfield Park again and Pride and Prejudice again. Or maybe it was Emma again. But anyways, so they got their second run. So they sold out completely and then got a second run. And then with Northanger Abbey and Persuasion, her reputation as one of the masters of the novel form was kind of solidified with those. So some positioning to do. Uh, We talked, I've talked quite a bit about this with the older context, but where she was in literary history. She's kind of like... um, who did we just talk about that was right in that interesting middle period? Oh, C.S. Lewis. Right. She was in an mid- interesting middle period. You had what came before it was the Age of Enlightenment, also known as the Age of Reason. And the Age of Reason was all about we could understand the world rationally. So you get all these guys who are making you know the science books and the math books and trying to comprehend the world and set the world out in, a, in an orderly fashion so that we can make sense of everything and move forward in progress uh, towards the future. And the future would be progress. We would grow as a society in our knowledge, which would make us grow in virtue, grow in wealth and happiness and all these things. So that was the Age of Enlightenment. Out of the Age of Enlightenment, then you get the sort of works that come along with the Age of Enlightenment. You get uh, restrained books, right? Very classically beautiful books that are well-organized and well put together. But there's also a strain within that period where you start to get the early novels, which would have some sentimentalism in them. So the famous example is that one by Richardson, Pamela. And then, but you also then you Tristram Shandy and uh, the Henry Fielding's Tom Jones, which was making fun of the book that I just said, Pamela. Yeah. And so those are sort of the early novels and they're, but they're more towards the sentiment. They're more towards refining your sentiment through the story that's taking place. And so they are sentimental, obviously. They play on your emotions. They, you, they really draw out your emotions to make their point. Jane Austen doesn't really do that as much because she's right at this sort of transition period into more realism. But she also then will have uh, some sentimentality, but she's more real, a, a realist than she is a sentimentalist. At least that's what most people say. I think it's, I mean, I yeah. think one of the peop- reasons people don't like Mansfield Park is because she doesn't give you that last little sentimental thing at the end that a lot of people probably would have yeah would have liked in that last chapter. Right at the same time as she's writing, you also have the romantic period that's taking place with its storm in undrong and all this crazy emotion where you're looking at like the drastics of life, the the extremes, the death and violence and just extreme sadness, the sort of stuff that would give you like Wuthering Heights, the Gothic movements that would give you Frankenstein in 1818. It's interesting. By the way, the the Bronte sisters really didn't like Jane Austen and specifically said she lacks storm and drung. That's exactly what they said. Yeah. 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 They did not like her at all. They said she lacked the passion, which is basically storm and drung. She storm and thunder. Lightning and Thunder, all these things that came from the German Goethe movement with Faust and the Sorrows of Young Werther, where it was all about 
experiencing the extremes of art through extreme emotion. You've probably seen the famous paintings where it's the tall cliffs, like the deer at the bottom, but the cliffs are huge and then you have the sunset behind it. And it's it's the idea of the sublime, experiencing the transcendental through the sublime of nature. We get a lot of this with the Romantic movement and it's happening right at the same time as Jane Austen. In fact, it's having its heyday because in 1818, you get Frankenstein and that comes completely out of the same movement. 1798, you get Wordsworth and Coleridge publish the lyrical ballads. So the Romantic movement is happening at the exact same time Jane Austen is writing her novels. And she's absolutely not a romanticist. In fact, she makes a lot of fun of it with Northanger Abbey. Yeah. It's weird because I just don't even, like I always place her in a different time period in my mind because yeah. of that, I think. Yeah, you always want to say she's earlier than that. Yeah, I always just imagine her earlier. Yeah, most people, I think they Every want to put her. Every time we do these contexts, I remember, oh yeah, she's not yeah. just weird to me. Yeah, most people want to put her like in that Age of Enlightenment mm. revival yeah, because we see her as kind of classically clean, but she's not really that style because as we saw, for some reason, that classically clean era produced things like Shamala. I know mm. Pamela, and then Shamala, it's it the parody. Right. The parody. So it's interesting to think why the Age of Enlightenment then produced such sentimental fiction. Um, I don't know if I've ever really dealt with it or come figured it out, but it did. And then you get her... It's just because people aren't robots. Yeah. And it has to... It's going to find an outlet somewhere. Yep. And that's where it found its outlet. And bad... Schmuck? 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 Schlock. Schlock. Schmuck? Schmuck? So then you have her. And she's kind of... She is with a lot of her early stuff. Like, what is that one I said? Love and friendship. She's responding to Pamela in those works. She's making fun of them in their cutesy sentimentality. And she is as well. And... um from what I understand, Sense and Sensibility is kind of making fun of those sentimentalist novels as well. And then sentimentalism, of course, would have its revival again in the Victorian age, when again, things became very tight-laced with Dickens. Dickens is the father and champion of it. But The worst sentimental novel we've read has actually been uh, was the one, Dracula. Yeah, Dracula fits right into that, the sentimentalist revival. And that was sentimental as... I'll get out. That's right. So she fits into that. So then you have the romantic period, Lord Byron. They're all off in their lake. Well, 1818 is right when they're at the lake mm. because that's when Frankenstein was influenced. So it's really interesting to think that little conservative Jane, who would be the master of the novel form in the way that she was, was doing all of her work right at the same time as Lord Byron and yeah, that's what's Shelley and all these. So Mary Wollstonecroft, who was Mary Shelley's fa- uh, mother, wrote her book about feminism at the time, about how women should be free to be sexually, ex- sexually explore and not be limited by society. And so then all those young... T- kids would take that and they would go off and basically have their Woodstock at that lake. And then Frankenstein came out of that. It's inter- it's just all living side by side with one another here. And then you have people who have the nerve, if that's the context that Jane Austen lives and writes in, and they have the nerve to call her a proto-feminist. Yeah. Like Which she's she, not. If she'd wanted to be a proto-feminist, she could have just... She could have just been a feminist. Been a proto-feminist, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She could have been just a... Yeah. <laughs> she was smart enough, but... She was conservative, and she she was like a, a champion of the aristocrat, the way things her, were, yeah. yeah. Her quiet life. There's a wonderful, I think I might have talked about this last year when we did Emma, but there's a wonderful review that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote that you can find online if you just Google it, where he was talking. He was just reviewing, I forget which book, he's reviewing some of Jane Austen's books, or one of them, I think, and he's just... Lauding, he's just loading on the praise and he's saying that it's relatively easy for me to 
excite you in my work because I write about highwaymen and pirates and knights and stuff like that. But for this woman to be able to write about these trite little dinner parties and somehow find all this drama is just incredible. He's like, I can't do that. I have to write about big, broad, crazy, romantic subjects because that's the only thing that we can do to keep your interest. But Jane Austen can write about almost nothing comparatively and still keep your interest. The prototypical Seinfeld, Jane Austen. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> A book about, <laughs> book about nothing. nothing. Exactly. <laughs> Probably the closest we've had to scenes like she does with would be with Tolstoy because mm-hmm. a lot of his things happen in drawing rooms and in just discussions between people. Yeah, he's similar. So. He's one of the only other people we've read, certainly, that can just make a party scene where nothing happens full yeah. of drama in life. Yeah, but then he's going to turn around and he's going to paint you an awesome... Yeah, yeah. give you yeah. a scene. Yes, <laughs> an actual right. scene. Some strum and drum. Well, there were some reviews that saw her genius at the time, compared her to Shakespeare, guys like that. As a reminder to people, she also was the earliest known and frequent user of what we call free indirect style. And what that is, is it's where instead of having like, and he thought, and then quotation marks, it's where you can just kind of go in and out of the author's perspective. So I don't know if we can find an example. Fanny regarded, you know, or let's, I don't know. Henry says something stupid, or Jake says something stupid. And then we, and then instead of saying, Nathan thought how stupid Jake was, we just, it just says, how stupid Jake was, you know. Yeah. So it's suddenly in your voice, but also the author's voice. Right. And it gets you like, yeah, you're giving some of Nathan's reaction to Jake's stupidity, but it's mingled then with that that sort of um, omniscient authorial perspective. Right. Sometimes with Jane Austen, I think it's a little hard to tell. It is hard to tell. Jane telling you it or it's the character's feeling. That's part of the fun of it. Yeah. And part of the brilliance of it too. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and it almost every author uses it since and has used it since then. Yeah, you really, you know, in in Mansfield Park, there were certain times where I found myself wondering if the rug was going to get pulled out from under me. How much is Fanny Price's perspective and Jane Austen's perspective the same? Like I've seen her do this before to me. Mm-hmm. You know, am I gonna like get the whoop? We didn't mm-hmm. understand Henry Crawford all along. I didn't really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can just take a random. But that's sentence. the kind of that's the kind of thing that, especially coming on the heels of Emma, which is right. That's the whole trick of that book, is, right? That's what makes it funny yeah. and fun. I think I, Emma, to my mind, has more examples of her really playing with that, which makes sense given that it came after she's if she's yeah, still she's developing developed that. It. Yeah. yeah. I don't think she was ever self-conscious of it as a style mm-hmm. or something that she was innovating. It just was just something the she, did. she did. It. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was a genius. Mm-hmm. She created a whole narrative form. So yeah. So if anybody ever doubts her genius, that is really where her genius comes in, and almost everybody has used it since then. Sure. If you really want a good examples, just look free and direct style up Jane Austen. Right. You'll have it all over the place. So just but trust us, she was innovative with it. <laughs> So we wanted to step back and talk about peerage in England. Mm -hmm. Really important for these novels because you have to understand the situation, the position people were in with sort of hierarchy within society. You had the peerage system, which gave certain titles of nobility to certain men. It wouldn't be necessarily to their families, but it would be to the men. And by relation, the families could be called like lady or sir. Mm-hmm. But then the actual title of that nobility would be with just one person, and it was inherited. And these went like way back to kings, and they could be based on merit, they could just be based on wealth, whatever they were based on. But it made you of the noble class, and it made you eligible to be in the House of Lords. We don't see many lords and barons in the books that we've read, but we do Thomas Bertram. He has inherited a baron, a, a baronage, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's at stake with Tom possibly dying, and Edmund finally, he would inherit that title of nobility, 
which comes into play later in the novel in a very powerful way. (laughs) Darcy himself was not a nobleman, but he did have nobles in his family. His mother, I think, was the wife of an earl, and he and then on his father's side there had been some other nobility. What would later Lady Catherine be, since she's Lady Catherine? Probably her husband had been. Her husband had been some sort of nobility, and then by association she was able to take. I think I'm trying to remember what they called it. Just honor titles, I think. Right. So if your husband was an earl or a viscount or viscount hmm. or a baron, then you would be able to call yourself lady. Which makes sense for Lady Catherine because there's no yeah. real nobility of character built yeah. into her she's mm-hmm. she feels like someone who doesn't deserve her title yeah yeah and often it would be the way that way you wouldn't necessarily deserve your title famous example in this book would be mr rushworth he's not a nobleman but he is a landed gentry and so the difference there would be that you would have certain people that just based on the wealth of their family the wealth of their connections were able to afford land and according to british law at the time if you had like land that was more worth more than 40 pounds or something like that i was about to say 40 shekels but they didn't use shekels Shillings, 40 shillings, mm. then you were able to vote in parliament or vote for your parliament representative. And so Darcy would have been landed gentry. So would have Mr. Bennett, mm-hmm. all these country farmers, but you had gradations even within that. And a lot of those were decided by the size of your house, basically. And you had the great houses of power and Mansfield Park would definitely have been one of these. Their names carry kind of an echo of what they used to be. So Pemberley Hall, it would have been like a great hall. Mansfield Park, named after the fact that it was just an enormous park. Some of these others, the Manors Abbey, Downton Abbey, mm-hmm. named after the fact that it actually used to be an abbey that was then taken away from the monks and given to one of the king's noblemen in honor of something he had done for him in service. And so we see the nobility and we see the landed gentry and people know their place. You're not supposed to rise from one level to the other easily, but even lower than that, then you had just kind of the working class. And my understanding is that prices are more that class. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. They're the working class. They live in Portsmouth. But the three, know. what are the name of the sisters? The Fanny's mom and her sisters. What were yeah, their names? Yeah, their names um, were very first. Should be on paragraph the paragraph of the book. Sorry, I didn't bring my book because I'm an idiot. The Wards. The Wards. So the three Ward sisters essentially just all, each one of them married into a different yep. class, basically, right? Yeah, which is yeah. the brilliance of this novel is you get to see each of the classes. Mm-hmm. And so you get to see the nobility, which is... I don't know. We don't really see much of that except in a to parody it. Like, I don't know if Mr. Knightley is a... He's not noble, right? I don't think so. I think so. he's just landed gentry. Well, he would be sir... Yeah. Uh, whatever, right? That's right. So, but, yeah, but even within these classes of nobility and with the landed gentry, you would still have levels of gradation based largely on wealth. A lot of this man- money was made off of the slave trade, and so... One of the big criticisms of this novel, one that I don't have much patience for, Ugh, yeah. is the fact that Thomas Bertram goes to India or somewhere well, wherever he goes to oversee his plantation or his estate there, and most likely that meant he had slaves. Doesn't Fanny ask him some questions about slaves or something? That's right. I think in chapter 21, that's the famous notorious chapter. The notorious chapter. (laughs) It makes this novel not worth reading. Apparently, me and Jake and Brandon, before we started this podcast, we watched the trailer for the 1999 movie version of Mansfield Park, and it made me want to puke. And I almost walked out of the room because it made me so mad. It looked like it spit all over everything that was good about this novel, and it looked horrible. And it had the scene where a guy said, or where Fanny said to Edmund or something, keep your wig on. So I was just like, I wish I could sh- uh, shoot myself. <laughs> it's horrible. But what was my point about that? 
Oh, apparently, I read a review of that movie, and apparently, they make a whole subplot about how Sir Thomas is a slave, and I yeah. think like Fanny stands up to him and says, "You can't have slaves," and then Sir Thomas repents of it, and you know, I think by the end of the movie, maybe he's decided to get out of slavery and get into a different money making scheme, and it's just like, <laughs> ugh. anyway. Just, just to illustrate yeah, how so f- dumb people are about this whole thing. So either with like the Hollywood dumb liberals mm-hmm. or some just screaming liberals within the ac- academy, mm-hmm. you'll have this touted as th- the reason not to read this novel. It's by stupid people, not worth listening to. But that is just something you should be aware of. People cling on to that as a reason to throw this novel out the window, which is dumb. So yeah, so you have, uh, you don't see as, I think probably the book you see the most of the hierarchy would be Emma, mm-hmm. because it works directly into the... Or trying to raise Harriet's station, yeah. essentially. Is you know, Harriet wanting, Harriet not even being of the landed gentry, cannot then hope to marry a nobleman, or even someone of the landed gentry class. Um, you were supposed to stay in your station and be happy in your station. Station, order, was important. And this was seen in the way that you would manage your estates. There was a famous guy who would go around and he would, um, his name was Humphrey Repton. He was a guy who would basically go and he would make your estate the best estate possible, like put trees here, take some trees out here. And she alludes to him in the novel, doesn't she? Specifically, Does she actually say his name in the novel? She might, yeah. Humphrey Repton's famous. With Rushworth's whole thing where he's going (laughs) to... There's actually a really good play by Tom Stoppard if you really want to see the whole, the way that estates were in this period. It's set in the basically this time period. It's called Arcadia. It's a good play. And it's about Humphrey Repton coming to this house. And then it's, yeah, it's fun. It's a good play. I think I recommend it. I'd have to go back. If Brandon doesn't remember something bad about Arcadia, we apologize, but yeah. So Humphrey Repton, he was a famous um, large estate architect, basically. And his idea was to blend the natural and order together. And so you would want, you know, to have the long uh, places where you could ride your horses and take walks, but also the ideal for the view and to make it look natural, but also clean and orderly. Because at the time, people had it in your head that these large manor houses, these estates, through their orderliness would also then help the manor lord be orderly in his self, or at least the orderly of his estate would reflect his orderliness in his soul. And so therefore his orderliness would then go out into the way that he ruled and managed the nation. Mm -hmm. And so you would have order, order and control. Hmm. And so estates and landscaping in this time of history became very important because they became a picture of the British ability to order nature. And obviously then the romantics were a reaction against this, you know, with their sublime and their senses Mm -hmm. of awe and transcendence, which is... To go back to C.S. Lewis really briefly mm-hmm. is a big warning against that stuff. I mean, if if that made anybody mad about the C.S. Lewis um, episodes we did against, yeah. Uh, yeah, he would follow more in the line of like Keats mm-hmm. with his negative sublime, which you uh, reach transcendence through seeing nature, which is bigger than you. There's a paganism to that, and Jane Austen has nothing of that in her. Her prayer that we read, it's very orderly and clean and conservative. Mm. And you can have good spiritual thoughts without having to force yourself into the sublime. I think that we get a lot of our ideas of sublimity and transcendence through mysticism. And mysticism is very connected to the romanticism and stuff like that. And it's all very tied to paganism. And so just untangling yourself from some of those thorns or not even getting entangled in them in the first place yeah, is a, a warning I will give. <laughs> Tie that up. That's a nicely done (laughs) sentence right there. Worthy of Jane Austen herself. (laughs) 
I guess the only last thing, and we can talk more about this as we get into the book, is the critical response to this book has been pretty wild for such a tame novel Mm -hmm. with Fanny Price being such a very quiet and reserved heroine. Mm -hmm. This has had a lot of fiery responses and criticism. Most of it centered at Fanny. A lot of people don't like Fanny. And a lot of people do like Mary Crawford. Yeah. So one one really stupid review I saw <laughs> said that, come on, Mary Crawford and Henry Crawford are basically Elizabeth Bennet and Darcy, which is really stupid because they're not, but that was the point they were making. So then why would you like Fanny Price, who is basically, who's the boring lady from uh, Emma, the one that everyone makes? Uh, yeah, the one that Emma doesn't respect at yeah. all, but the, yeah, what's her? I you know what I'm talking about. Is, the, the, the one that marries Frank Churchill. Yeah, and then also obviously Edmund would be Mr. Collins. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are stupid, simplistic ways of viewing the book. Well, we'll talk more about that because people are bothered by the fact that it seems as though, you know, Lizzie has immaturity and learns a lesson. Mary Crawford has immaturity and is punished for it for some reason. And people don't understand what the, why. I think we can explain it to them. I think we will. I think we will. Stay tuned for that, folks. But the, one of my favorite ones was this. Auerbach. There's something horrible about her that's Fanny that deprives the imagination of its appetite for ordinary life and compels it toward the deformed, the dispossessed. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. So basically... <laughs> I guess we have to open up the question is does Fanny Price belong in the monster squad? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> well, she's doing what? Let's read that again. She's uh, making our soul go towards the deformed. And the Something dis- horrible about her that deprives the am- imagination of its appetite for ordinary life. So she's boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And compels it toward the deformed. Okay. The dispossessed because of her lack of, she doesn't want to participate in a play. And so therefore she's horrible. <laughs> And she's dispossessed and deformed. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, you know, if you don't want to participate in a play, then you must be a deformed monster, that's for sure. Um, well, you know what I read? I, I've got right here as an article called A Feminist Reading of... Actually, it's called A Feminist Marxist Reading of Mansfield Park. <laughs> I just thought I'd read a little excerpt from this. You guys might enjoy it. I think it'll really help us as we commence on our discussion of this great novel. Marriage is another experience in submission for women and the ultimate model of socially expected female subjugation to male authority. Blah, 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 blah. Morgan notes the similarity of this circumstance to the conditions faced by colonized people, like the slaves, and like the workers who are forced by a system of punishment and reward to adopt the, the oppressor's standards, values, and identification. In the same way, women must learn to accept the complete authority of their husbands in order to maintain societal acceptance. Sounds good. Fanny triumphs over... (laughs) Brandon's like, yeah. (laughs) Fanny triumphs over Mary Crawford in the bid for Edmund's affection by virtue of her unquestioning submission to Edmund as the leading male figure in her life. Mary remains unmarried and thus must continue her search to secure her own place within society. She could not succeed in beginning a life with Edmund because she could not accept him as her superior. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. It's all about female subjugation, this book. Yeah, that's what all it's about. Mm-hmm. That's oh, really what man. Jane Austen wanted to bring out for us is just a plea from help within prison walls. She's basically scrawling her little note on, in the prison. It that, puts uh, me in mind of Margaret Atwood and... Uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's like the great Margaret Atwood, <laughs> our favorite on the, yeah, on the book. And I can see that. 
The Handmaid's Tale. This is basically The Handmaid's Tale. That's why we love The Handmaid's Tale so much. Right, because we love female subjugation. Right. And so, yeah, Margaret Atwood and Jane Austen, two peas in a pod. Two peas in a pod, yeah. Both presenting the same vision. The same vision for female subjugation. Which is our vision. Yep. It's definitely (laughs) our vision. You guys' wives are completely subjugated. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's one word that comes to mind when I meet Mrs. Chastine or Mrs. Menzel. It's Of Jake, I think. Of Jake or of Brandon, yes. I think there's a subjugated lady. Yeah, I mean, whenever you come over, you know, Anna kneels and I use her as my footstool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's really awkward, actually, yeah. I have to say. <laughs> I just lock Amanda up in the attic, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, unquestioning submission is what we're looking for, and it's what Jane Austen is looking for in this great novel. Yeah. I only hope that I can find my, I can find my own little Fanny Price, Fanny, Fanny Alberson, uh, as she'll be called, I suppose, who will, uh, what is it, what does it say? here who will bid for my affection by virtue of her unquestioning submission to me yep. that's what we're looking for that's what we're looking for anyway you were, you were, you were saying oh, I'm, I'm done it, 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 this novel has been the subject of controversy from the time of its release jane austen's mom said thought that fanny was insipid i want to say was the word cassandra her sister said that she thought that fanny should end up with henry crawford it's one of the only disagreements we have between on record between these two sisters that loved each other and agreed about everything but she really thought the novel would be stronger if fanny you know people thought that that turn with henry crawford was a plot device that comes out of nowhere to save the plot i don't Agree, but I suppose we'll get to that. No, it all depends on whether or not you actually think Fanny is as discerning as... That really is what it comes down to. And if you're not bought in, I can see why people would say that about what happened with Henry. I, you know, yeah, she maintains, I felt like she maintained it. Well, and she kind of... No, because she, she she talks about it at the end and and basically in the last chapter, which basically amounts to an epilogue, mm-hmm. that Henry could have actually won with yeah. Fanny, and she makes you feel that the whole way through. I think she does a really nice job of that. But yeah, and then she's yeah. like, "Nope, he screwed up." But we'll get to we, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Well, guys, we're already out of time for this episode. Brandon, whoa, your 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 context, man, it went on forever. I'll have to cut it down next time. No, it's okay. People love your context. They got a, a nice. Here, I'll add one thing. I think I said this last year, but it's worth repeating. The people that knew and loved Jane Austen, specifically her nephew who wrote a little biography of her, said that she was a very loving woman who was always ready. Her nephew specifically described her as someone who was ready to put down her writing and play with her nieces and nephews and help out around the house anytime and uh, basically sat in the common area. And I really think that's a beautiful portrait of a lady writer. People have disputed that and said, of course, of course, the people that knew and loved Jane Austen were going to want to whitewash her and say that she was great and sell us all a bill of goods. And so you should instead listen to modern historians who can tell you how subjugated and terrible Jane Austen felt all the time and how... How much she wanted a room of her own. How much she was trying to subvert the patriarchy. and Yeah, a room of her own. Yeah, exactly. Which I just think is so backwards. It's like if, I think we probably said this last year, but it's like if Jake died and then nobody wanted to listen to me and Brandon tell Jake's story, but instead some scholar was supposed to tell Jake's story because we can't trust Nathan and Brandon. They both loved Jake, so we can't trust their, what they, (laughs) 
Obviously, anyone yep. that knew or loved Jake would, would, is compromised. So we have to trust somebody a hundred years down the line, <laughs> right? To, who's uh, just give us the true yeah. interpretation? <laughs> who's speculating? <laughs> <laughs> so I just think it's so backwards. But I love that portrait of Jane Austen that her nephew, I think his name was Lay Austen or something like that. I don't remember. I didn't re I didn't re research right, it for yeah. this episode, but it's Lay something. He just gives a beautiful portrait of her, and it's really nice. And it's one of the best fortifications you can have against the idea of Jane Austen as a proto-feminist because, the well, the best fortification you have is just read her novels, which are not proto-feminist in any way, shape, or form. But they certainly are easy for some people to read into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Day was written and produced by Nathan Robertson. It was executive produced by Jacob Menzel and Nathan Robertson. It's performed by Brandon Chastine, Jacob Menzel. Nathan Robertson did a little performance of his own as well there. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the booking, right, Jake? That's right. Sign up. Get a shout out. Get a shout out. Get a book. Get some cool behind the scenes videos, all that awesome stuff. Yeah, what else? I guess we'll be back next week. We didn't even get to baggage check. We'll say our baggage next week. Brandon, you excited for baggage? Yeah. All right. And give us you want to give us a preview of what your baggage will be? Probably what my baggage was in the other two episodes. Oh yeah, people can go <laughs> and listen to those. Maybe your baggage has changed. Maybe, <laughs> maybe 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 Brandon in the intervening year decided that he hates Jane Austen. Uh, maybe. I mean, it's possible. What yeah. do you think, Jake? You excited? You're just sit on the edge of your seat until next week? Oh yeah. All right, we'll see everybody next week. Yay!